From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the latest from the Middle East is a temporary ceasefire holds and Hamas releases some hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. Also, Ron Elving on tensions in U.S. politics. A Nationalist Party wins in the Netherlands. What could follow? The Mexican military now owns an airline, and that's not all. And people struggling with addiction find kindred spirits with rescue horses. It kind of helps when we, we all come together and we talk about our issues and everything like that. It just feels like the horses are, you know, they're the same, basically. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, November 25th, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. In Gaza, a temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is holding for a second day. Israel is gathering a group of Palestinian prisoners to release today, as Hamas has promised to release more hostages. NPR's Daniel Estrin tells us what life is like at this juncture in Gaza. Israel says more humanitarian aid has reached Gaza as part of the temporary truce agreement. Four trucks of fuel and four trucks of cooking gas entered the Strip from Egypt for aid organizations. NPR producer Anas Baba in Gaza says for the first time in many weeks, Palestinians are driving around southern and central Gaza to check on relatives while the Israeli bombardment is on pause. Fuel supplies are scarce, so they're using cooking oil to power old cars. The UN says it managed to deliver flour for bread to two UN facilities sheltering displaced Palestinians in northern Gaza, the first time in over a month that it's been able to deliver aid to the area occupied by Israeli forces. And Al-Ahali Hospital in Gaza City resumed limited medical services. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Holiday shopping began online on Thursday, according to data from Adobe Analytics. Gone are the days that brawling crowds fortified by massive turkey feasts would queue in front of big box stores. Cyber analysts say consumers spent $5.6 billion on Thanksgiving Day from the relative calm of their digital devices, even as most major stores were closed that day. Still, people did pour into brick-and-mortar stores Black Friday, looking for a change of scenery and a little fun. Calvin Garcia went shopping in Rentham, Massachusetts. People always say, like, oh, why don't you just do, like, online shopping? But I still find fun in going out and hanging out with my friends and stuff and just being out here, you know? It's, it's early in the morning, but you only live once, so might as well have fun. He spoke to WCVB in Boston. Adobe Analytics says online shopping on Thanksgiving was 5.5% higher than Thanksgiving last year. Investors gave thanks for a rising stock market during the holiday week. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped more than 1.25%. It was a light week of trading on Wall Street. The stock market was closed on Thanksgiving and held an abbreviated session on Friday. Nevertheless, all the major indexes managed to eke out gains for the fourth week in a row. The S&P 500 rose 1%, while the Nasdaq was up 9 tenths of a percent. Bond yields rose on Friday, with a 10-year Treasury ending just under 4.5%. Mortgage rates, however, were lower, with the average rate on a 30-year fixed loan now under 7.3%. While mortgage rates have eased a little bit, they're still high compared to recent years. The National Association of Realtors reported this past week that sales of existing homes in October fell to their lowest level in more than 13 years. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News in Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A woman shot in Boston's Hyde Park neighborhood last night has life-threatening injuries. The shooting happened around 10 p.m. near the Hyde Park commuter rail station. The woman was taken to a Boston-area hospital. No other information is available. A 2% shareholder of Charlton-based Treehouse Brewing is suing the two majority shareholders. The Boston Globe reports that Eric Granger says the two overpaid themselves, hid millions in real estate investments, and cheated him out of profits. Granger is now the only minority shareholder at Treehouse. The other two minority shareholders accepted buyouts earlier this year. Treehouse has not yet filed a legal response to the allegations. A new exhibit at the New England Aquarium showcases people working to increase access to Boston's waterfront. The Voices of the Waterfront exhibit is meant to highlight reasons to protect the area. It's part of a collaboration with the Coalition for a Resilient and Inclusive Waterfront. Luz Aregoses is the Director of Community Engagement at the Aquarium, and she says it's a privilege that Boston is an oceanfront city. We wanted to show the different ways that people engage with their waterfront and really emphasize that there's a multi-use approach to our waterfront and the need to protect it so that we can keep doing these activities and even more so in the future. The 27 photos outside the aquarium will be on display through spring of next year. The Boston Women's Holiday Market is kicking off its winter season today. It features more than 30 small businesses founded by women and will make several stops throughout the Boston area. This weekend, it's at the Armory in Somerville from 11 to 4. The event will include live music, food, and a gift wrapping station. At Madison Square Garden this afternoon, the Bruins face the New York Rangers. It is 27 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 30s, lows in the upper 20s overnight. For your Sunday, partly sunny skies and temperatures in the mid-40s. Looking ahead to Monday, some rain mostly in the morning and highs reaching the mid-50s. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. The pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas continues for another day to allow the release of some of the hostages Hamas has held since last month and relief for hundreds of thousands of Palestinians inside of Gaza. Yesterday, two dozen Israeli hostages were freed. In exchange, Israel released 39 Palestinian prisoners, part of an internationally brokered deal, but the situation... Remains tense, and Piers Brian Mann joins us now from Ramallah in Israeli-occupied West Bank. Brian, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. Please tell us about the Israelis and others freed by Hamas. This happened late in the afternoon local time. The International Red Cross busts these hostages out of Gaza into Egypt, where they were taken quickly into Israel, to military base, and also to hospitals. It's really impossible to overstate how emotional and crucial this is for Israelis getting these hostages freed. Here's Debbie Kay, who spoke this morning with our colleague Daniel Estrin in Jaffa. I mean, I think I feel what most Israelis feel, which is a little bit of relief and massive amount of worry about the rest that are not back yet. 
And Kate said she knows Palestinians are also suffering in this crisis. It's all just really sad, she said. So the mood was far from celebratory. Although I will say yesterday's release did include Hannah Katsir, a 77-year-old mother and grandmother, Scott, who had been reported dead by Hamas, and it turns out she's still alive, which is just fantastic. Um, there were also 10 hostages from Thailand and one from the Philippines held by Hamas who were released yesterday. Uh, a sad note, there are roughly 10 Americans being held, according to U.S. officials. None of them have been let go so far. Brian, you were in Ramallah to see uh, Palestinian prisoners released by Israel. What was that like? Yeah, it was really emotional here. The first prisoners, young teenage boys, many of them detained for throwing stones or Molotov cocktails, arrived here in Ramallah long after dark, and this massive crowd erupted in cheers, carrying them on their shoulders. And one thing I've heard here is loud support for Hamas. Many people chanting Hamas slogans last night and flying the green Hamas flag. Over the last 50 days, the group appears to have won a, a lot more backing. And why is that, Brian? Uh, <clears throat> the group attacked the south of Israel last month, killed about 1,200 people there, many of them civilians, young, uh, young children and the elderly. Yeah, this is hard. Years of Israeli occupation and now the death of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza during this war, that's all brought anger here against Israel to a boiling point. That's what people tell me. Many people see Hamas's violence as resistance. I spoke about this last night with a, a woman named Amin Nafa who was in the crowd. She was shaking with rage toward Israel. No normal people will do something to children, to buildings, to hospitals. What do you say when, when the Israelis say they also hurt children, Hamas hurt children as well? I believe they took soldiers. They did not come to civilians. And, and that's not accurate. Hamas killed a lot of Israeli civilians and children in their attack. But I hear this claim over and over among Palestinians here in the West Bank. Brian, what could happen next uh, if the temporary ceasefire holds? Yeah, the goal on both sides right now seems to be to get through Monday with hostages and prisoners released each day. In the meantime, humanitarian aid is flowing fast into uh, Gaza. More than 200 trucks crossing the border yesterday from Egypt. Uh, there are still hundreds of thousands of Palestinian civilians there now with little food or water and no medical supplies. And Pierre's Brian Mann in Ramallah in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. President Biden gave thanks yesterday for the release of the first group of hostages and said it was just a start. Over the next few days, we expect that dozens of hostages will be returned to their families. We also remember all those who are still being held. President said he was in contact with leaders of Qatar, Egypt, and Israel to try to be certain every aspect of the agreement is implemented. You know, uh, this extended pause in the fighting brings a critical opportunity to deliver much-needed food, medicine, water, and fuel to the civilians in Gaza, and we are not wasting one single minute. NPR's Ron Elvin joins us now. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. The president remains a staunch supporter of Israel, uh, but we did just hear him underscore how the ceasefire uh, is part of the release of the hostages that will also help aid reach citizens in Gaza. Will this assuage some of the voices in his own party who, uh, who differ with the president on this issue? We should be clear, everyone supports the hostage release and the humanitarian aid getting through. 
But unless this pause becomes a real ceasefire, it's it's not likely to silence those voices in Biden's party, not all of them, not for long. You know, Biden was already in the Senate when the Yom Kippur War happened in 1973. That was a time when support for Israel was all but automatic in both parties. But Democrats now have many voters who don't have the same history of support for Israel. Many focus on the Palestinians as victims of oppression. Uh, They tend to be younger voters, often people of color, people who supported candidates other than Biden in the primaries in 2020, and they have been highly critical of his stance on this crisis. And the conflict in the Middle East is just one of the tensions in domestic politics these days, isn't it? Yes, it does come home. Right now, it seems fair to say tension dominates our political life. There are stark differences about Israel and Hamas, but also about the extent of our support for Ukraine and the global challenge of immigration, not just on our southern border, but at various points around the world. Witness the recent right-wing pushback elections in Europe and the stunning outburst of violence in Dublin this past week. In this country, there's also rising tension about the coming elections. Most voters say they don't want a rerun of the two candidates from 2020, but our two-party system does not seem able to give us anything else. So we will see third-party options and independent candidates next year, even though history tells us such candidates cannot win. They can only tilt the result one way or the other in ways we can't always predict. Ron, we spoke last week about lawmakers threatening to, to smack each other around Capitol Hill. There are enormous divisions among House Republicans and just not enough bridges, aren't there? You know, that's right. Things did seem to settle down on Capitol Hill this week, but only because Congress was out of town. It's not just about leadership. It's contentious, and it has been contentious on fundamental divisions among Republicans over the role of government, the size of government, federal spending, cultural issues, and even constitutional issues like the separation of church and state. The Republicans need to deal with these if it's going to make their strongest case to voters in 2024. It's not all just Biden versus Trump. And one particular issue for Republicans is adapting their position on abortion. The party leans towards stricter and stricter limits, even as voters are consistently rejecting them. Ron, funeral is going to be held next week for Rosalind Carter. Uh, We remember her this week. Um, She brought grace to some tough times in this country, didn't she? Tough times indeed. It was the third year of Rosalind Carter's husband, Jimmy, in the White House. And at that time, inflation was over 11 percent. It is now 3.2, by the way, for comparison. Unemployment was 6 percent. It's now under 4 Back then, the Iranian revolution was causing oil shortages and spiking oil prices, and the U.S. Embassy had just been overrun in Tehran, and more than 50 Americans were being held hostage. It was a tough time, indeed. We sometimes think the challenges from our past that we survived were somehow less daunting than the ones we're facing now, even when the opposite is true. We think we can all recall a common, one thing we can all recall in common is that Rosalind Carter did all she could as First Lady, providing and projecting calm and courage and inspiration for Americans then and now. Ron Elvian, thank you. Thank you, Scott. Tis the season of school shows between Thanksgiving and the winter holidays. I love seeing the children on stage, dressed up as trees, horses, gangsters, mad scientists, caterpillars, or sugar plum fairies, and 
figures from the scriptures, literature, and history. I love seeing kids in long white cotton ball beards or under cardboard crowns or tri-cornered hats, shoulders draped in royal robes, shepherd's smocks, or an uncle's old suit coat. I love to hear student orchestras tune up, striking top notes with guinea pig squeals. I love to see parents and relatives nudge one another when their child has a line to recite. I cherish those moments you can sometimes catch in the flick of a teary eye when a costumed grade schooler squints into the dark seats and then lights up at the glimpse of a parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, or friend. I love the excitement, the anxious laughter, the elbow pokes for missed lines. I love to see young actors speak lines for the first time on stage from Shakespeare, Dickens, Hansberry, or Bible verses, nursery rhymes, or a homegrown work by some sixth-grade scrivener who wants to remind grown-ups of the real meaning of hope this season. Sometimes feel for students who get cast to play a reporter. Here we are, alive in Bethlehem, they might have to say, or purport to report from the moon or ancient Rome or Neverland. Every other kid in the production gets to wear a tunic, a poodle skirt, or a donkey head. But our reporter gets handed a mic that's not even plugged in and a fedora with a press card and told, pretend you're on CNN. I love to see students play adults. They may stand up straight and deepen their voices and then pretend to be exasperated, confused, or silly. You might begin to laugh at their act until you ask yourself, wait, did they see that in me? And I love those moments when a student sings, dances, or delivers lines with such finesse and conviction, you sit up and realize all over again how children grow up and grow into their own works of art. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818, coming up in about five minutes. In the Netherlands, a far-right party dominated this week's election. A Dutch political scientist discusses what this might mean for Europe. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, highs in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Sunday's highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. On day two of a temporary ceasefire in Gaza, more hostages are expected to be released by Hamas. Israel, in turn, is expected to free more Palestinian prisoners. The U.N. says 137 trucks made humanitarian deliveries in Gaza on Friday. Pope Francis has canceled his Saturday audiences. The Vatican says the 86-year-old pontiff has a slight fever and a mild case of the flu. Holiday shoppers turned out in force at stores and malls for the promise of Black Friday deals. The National Retail Federation is forecasting a 3 to 4 percent rise in sales this season over last year's season. 
I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. A multi-day operation got underway yesterday with vehicles traveling through the Rafah border crossing from Gaza to Egypt carrying newly released hostages to celebratory shouts. Vehicles in that procession bear the emblem of the International Committee of the Red Cross. That's the agency at the heart of this activity during the pause in fighting. We're joined now by ICRC spokesperson Sarah Davies in Jerusalem. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is a very complicated operation. Uh, What can you tell us about, let's begin with the hostages released so far. Can you tell us where they are? What do they seem Uh, to be like? So, as you said, very complicated operation. Yesterday, we did begin uh, the multi-day operation that will see the release and transfer of uh, hostages, as well as the release of Palestinian detainees and the entry of really desperately needed aid into Gaza. Uh, I can speak, of course, about our operation yesterday, um, but as it is an ongoing operation, I'm sure you understand there are a lot of details that uh, I can't share at this time. Uh, our so, so have... well, let me, you don't know anything about the, the state of the hostages now, physically or emotionally? The ones that were released, yes. uh, we did have, I have spoken to our teams. I can't speak to their conditions. I know that there was psychological, physical, mental, uh, medical help for them uh, on the crossing. But our teams, uh, including a medical doctor, said that it was quite an obviously overwhelmingly emotional time. Yeah. The most important thing for our teams was that they were uh, in close proximity with those who were released, that they had the, the human touch that we could provide. We don't know uh, whether the hostages had been informed prior to the release of what was happening. Oh. So what we wanted to do was make sure that they felt reassured, that we gave them the space and the empathy that, that they needed uh, and just really let them know that they were safe that we had them, they were with us, and we would be taking them to the border crossing and eventually to their families and home. And how is the release proceeding of Palestinian detainees from uh, Israel to the West Bank? Uh, So yesterday, of course, we also did facilitate the release of 33 Palestinian detainees. Um, We know that the families of these detainees, as in any case of a release, they were tense, they were anxious, they, they wanted to see how it unfolded. Uh, but we have successfully concluded that stage of the operation um, in the West Bank as well, which is uh, part of our ongoing work in, in detention. How um, more hostages are to be released today, right? Uh, it, is, it is a multi-day operation, yes. Okay. Um, what can you tell us about 
What happens on the ground? Uh, who receives the hostages? How do you introduce yourselves? What happens? So uh, I'm sure you can imagine there are a lot of coordination aspects. There's a lot of sensitive issues and there are also on the ground challenges. Our cars leave our office in Gaza. Um, there were four vehicles yesterday and there were eight staff members um, and they go to, to a specific meeting point. Um, but sometimes getting there is not, not easy. Uh, mm -hmm. It is a conflict zone. There is rubble, there is debris, some roads are blocked. Uh, there are a lot of different um, challenges that, that can be faced. Um, they, they meet at the meeting point um, and they, they receive the hostages. Um, they, they are taken out of one car, our teams are there, they let them know who they are, they tell them their names, what will be happening, and then they escort them into our uh, International Committee of the Red Cross Vehicles. And once that aspect of the operation has concluded, they, they transport them, and in this case, that was to the, the Rafa crossing. What can you tell us about humanitarian aid getting into Gaza? Uh, we welcome the fact that this, this agreement that includes the, the release and transfer um, also includes aid entry into Gaza. Uh, we have trucks on standby with medical supplies. I have heard that our United Nations and other organisations have also had trucks that entered. And this is really, I can't stress how desperately this is needed. We have an influx of patients in the hospitals that our surgical teams are at, and we simply don't have the supplies or the human resources to, to cope with that. So many hospitals have uh, been unable to function. There are so many people who are internally displaced, and the weather is uh, unfortunately dropping in temperature, which creates more challenges for so many civilians on the ground. Sarah Davies is a spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross. Thank you very much for being with us, and uh, good luck to you. Thank you so much. Political party in the Netherlands, led by a far-right anti-Muslim candidate, won the most seats in Dutch Parliament in this week's elections. The success of Gert Wilders may be one more example of populist candidates who have won support across Europe. Sander van Osten is a political scientist at the University of Oxford, joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Why do you think Gert Wilders' party won so many votes? There's multiple reasons for this, and I think the most important reason is that he is the strongest supporter of Israel in Dutch Parliament. When he was young, he traveled to Israel, and it's really shaped his ideas. And there's been a lot of pro-Palestinian protests over the last couple of weeks, sit-ins, uh, demonstrations. And that's made particularly the electorate of Geert Wilders very angry. What about the immigration issue? What are the concerns that, that many voters in the Netherlands have about immigration that led so many to support uh, Geert Wilders' party? Yeah, so immigration has been an issue for voters for a long time. There are refugees in the Netherlands, there are labor migrants, and in the last year, there's been a lot more immigration to the Netherlands because of the war in Ukraine. Refugees from Ukraine are generally very much liked. People want to help them. They get very different treatment than refugees from, say, Syria. It's an in-group, out-group problem. You can also say it's because there aren't enough jobs, or more relevantly right now, there aren't enough houses. So housing is a big issue. And people say, well, I mean, I, don't, I can't find a house. My kids can't find a house. Why do these immigrants just get houses? Which isn't really exactly what's going on. People haven't been building enough houses in the last couple of years, which is why 
people can't find houses. But there's also a more norm-based explanation to this. Uh, for years and years, politicians in the Netherlands have had a homo-nationalist agenda. In 2002, there was a Dutch politician called Pim Fortuyn. He would really say things like, I'm against Muslims because they are against gay people. He himself was gay. Okay. And Geert Wilders really took over this agenda and really saw how well it worked. The Netherlands is very proud of being the first country in the world to allow same-sex marriage. So by saying, oh, they are threatening our liberal, sexual liberal uh, values, that can be seen as a very civil way of putting uh, Muslims in a bad light. The Netherlands has been known for uh, advances in climate policies in recent years. Would a Wilders-led party reverse that? Yeah, that's very well possible. The last climate minister put a lot of climate policies in place, and Geert Wilders' uh, party program is full of no more money to climate policies. We like meat, and we don't want to stop eating meat. We want to drive our cars, and we really don't want to support climate crazies, as he likes to call them. Gert Wilders has said he wants to take the Netherlands out of the European Union. Is that possible? I don't know whether that's possible or whether that will actually happen. But Cameron promised to hold a Brexit referendum in 2013. Wilders has been calling for an exit long before that. In June of 2005, there was a referendum for the European Constitution in the Netherlands, and he ran the no campaign for that referendum. Why? I mean, he's been the leader of Euroscepticism. I think it really fits his nationalist agenda. They don't like immigrants coming in, but they also don't like other powers or other countries telling us what to do. They also don't like change, and the world is becoming more globalized, and it's yeah, very typical for a populist radical right party to resist against globalization. Mm. Is it correct to see the rise of Gert Wilders' party in these elections as being, I, I guess, on the, on the same level as the uh, gains other right-wing populist parties have made? I mean, it occurs to me, as, as you talk to us, to have a pro-gay rights agenda wouldn't fit anybody's um, identification of a pro-right party in most places. Yeah, yeah. I think the Netherlands is uh, a little bit unique in that, but it's also really been spreading. So even the AfD in Germany has mentioned gay rights. Le Pen in France also is taking on this homo-nationalist agenda. And what Geert Wilders is also doing, he's also taking on a femo-nationalist agenda. And that's a very well-known agenda also in the U.S. I mean, at the times of the war in Afghanistan, a lot of the justification for that was to save women and just to help women's rights. Geert Wilders also does that. He also says, I'm standing up for women's rights. And it's really used strategically because he doesn't care about uh, gender equality, but he does care about it if he can strategically instrumentalize it against Muslims. Um, so I think that he was elected mostly because of his anti-Muslim hate propagated through a politics of racist scapegoating. I mean, uh, this is something that he particularly does, but this has also been visible throughout Europe for decades already. Senna Van Osten is a political scientist at the University of Oxford. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Travelers in Mexico could soon be flying on an airline owned and operated by that country's military. 
A subsidiary of the Mexican Army is reviving the bankrupt Mexicana Airlines, as James Frederick reports from Mexico City. Only one airline flies daily to Acapulco. Mexicana was a classic 20th century airline and one of the oldest in the world. We fly to more of Mexico than any other airline. But it went bankrupt in 2010 and was dormant until earlier this year when Mexico's military purchased the brand. Most see the move as a way for President Andrés Manuel López Obrador to bring business to a practically empty, unused airport he built in a remote spot outside Mexico City. But takeoff for Mexicana hasn't gone as planned. It was supposed to be relaunched in September, and then on December 1st. Now President López Obrador says the inaugural flight might happen on December 26th or, quote, soon, very soon. That's a problem because many in the industry say the airline doesn't actually own any planes or have any crew or staff to run the airline. Whenever Mexicana does take off, it will paint a picture of a worrying trend in Mexico. The inaugural flight is set to depart from the military-run Felipe Ángeles Airport outside Mexico City. It will land at the military-run Tulum Airport on the Caribbean coast. From there, passengers can easily board the military-run Maya train, a tourist project marred by scandal for ignoring environmental concerns in pristine jungle. Entonces, si bien no es un fenómeno que haya empezado en esta administración, sí se ha profundizado a una gran velocidad. Lisa Sanchez, the head of the think tank Mexicans United Against Crime, says militarization of Mexico did not start under López Obrador, but it has increased rapidly under his administration. Hundreds of government duties and billions of new dollars are now in military hands. They also run a public bank where Mexicans receive their pensions. They're hired by local governments to police cities across the country. They play a huge role in migration enforcement. It's really kind of a, a corporative mentality that has completely changed the nature of the military. That's Catalina Perez Correa, a law professor who runs a project tracking the military's growing power. Perez Correa says the military is acting like a large corporation, but one that is very inefficient and granted military-level secrecy. See, they're doing all of these things and they're simply not accountable. So they're, they're basically operating in many ways outside the law. López Obrador has led a huge transfer of power and money to the military, ensuring that they have a hold on the country long after he leaves power next year. For NPR News, I'm James Frederick in Mexico City. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Christmas trees and other holiday decor sprouted up in some places this year, even before Halloween. And while many people want to resist this early holiday creep, some churches take a different approach and expand the season known as Advent. NPR's religion and belief correspondent Jason DeRose tells us why it's about much more than preparing for a holiday. Typically, Advent is observed during the four weeks leading up to Christmas, but when he was a campus chaplain in Boston, Cameron Partridge realized how expanding Advent to seven weeks nurtured students. 
you know, you've got the end of the semester, you've got finals preparation to leave for home. So Advent barely got to be observed. So this gave an opportunity to actually really be present together and to observe it together, which could be grounding in a time of great intensity. A grounding Partridge brought with him when he came to St. Aidan's Episcopal Church in San Francisco. Good morning, St. Aidan's. And welcome to Advent. The season prepares for and locates us within the coming of the divine reign, the dream of God. Partridge says that Advent theme of divine reign, rather than a simple prelude to Christmas, is more poignant this year, given the conflict in the Holy Lands. We can't pretend that everything is fine. There is tumult in the world, and it is real, and it is hard, and it is deeply affecting people. People who need assurance that Advent resists violence and earthly powers. The real emphasis of this season is on the pursuit of justice and peace. And in the world we live in right now, you can't get more relevant than that. Bill Peterson is the retired dean of the Episcopal Seminary Bexley Hall. He's been at the forefront of expanding Advent beyond anticipation of Jesus in the manger to the hope for a just and peaceful world described by the Hebrew prophets. Maybe Advent has an integrity of its own, and it's not just a ramp up to Christmas or countdown. We get all these other images of God, really, the wisdom of God, the, the shepherding image, which is very different from on a throne, uh, much more humble and, and very uh, loving, if you really think about it. Methodist minister Suzanne Winona Duchesne teaches worship and preaching. She says the images of God found in Advent liturgy, wisdom, root, key, dawn, resist thinking of the divine solely as a triumphant king. Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Chicago is also ushering in the Advent theme of God's hope for the world, evident as Pastor Michelle Sevig leads worship. O God of justice and love, you illumine our way through life with the words of your Son. And evident in the way, says Pastor Craig Mueller, scripture, song, and prayer shape his congregation at Holy Trinity. It's too bad that many people equate Christianity with doctrines and beliefs in the head rather than what ritual could do to form us with the passages of time and what it means to be human. Humans formed to persevere through the sorrow of violence and rejoice in the hope of peace, says Cameron Partridge at St. Aidan's in San Francisco. Advent in its dwelling in the already and the not yet can ground and strengthen us in all of that uncertainty and help give us a sense from out of that grounding an ability to connect. Connect across difference in a war-ravaged world that's not yet the one for which God longs. Jason DeRose, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Some troubles brewing at Treehouse Brewing. A 2% shareholder of Charlton-based craft beer company is suing the two majority shareholders. The minority shareholder claims the two overpaid themselves, hid millions in real estate investments, and cheated him out of profits. 
Treehouse has not yet filed a legal response to the allegations. Holiday celebrations are on the schedule today around Boston. Roslindale holds its tree lighting with Mayor Michelle Wu. That begins at 3 this afternoon in Adams Park and features live music, free treats, ornament decorating, a visit from Santa, and a rain dog costume contest. Starting at 4, it's the third annual lighting of the play ship in Martins Park near the Children's Museum. That event also includes live music and free treats, plus visits from both Santa Claus and the Red Sox mascot, Wally the Green Monster. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org and Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. In times of crises, journalism plays a vital role. I'm Lisa Mullins. At WBUR and NPR, our job is to ferret out the facts and report the fullest version of the truth possible, challenge assumptions, hold officials to account, bear witness, and tell the stories of those with the most at stake. We can't do our job without your help. Make your year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. We're in horse country outside of Philadelphia, a city that struggles with addiction, crime, and a lack of adequate services for those in recovery. But here in Malvern, it's cool, leafy, and golden. A 30-year-old man who wants to be known only as Isaiah, as he's still in rehab, tells us of a moment last year when he was on meth or crack cocaine or heroin or oxycodone or just about anything he could get. And one night in the middle of the night. I was laying down on the train track, and uh, I was like, I got to do something different with my life. Um, you know, what am I doing? Just laying here, you know, high and drunk. You were laying down on the train track? Yeah. Did you want a train to come? I, I, I mean, in my head, I, I kind of wanted, you know, just to sleep and never wake up again, really. I just laid there for a while. And um, yeah, that's when I hit the, that light bulb. I just switched on in my head and told me to get some help. But finding help to overcome drug addiction can be hard, stigmatizing, and demanding. It's rarely a one-stop success. People try, they fall back, they come back, fail, and try all over again if they can make it even that far. The two men with whom we spent a recent morning in Philadelphia's countryside have found something sturdy and solid. It seems to help. Horses, and a program called Gateway Horseworks that lets them put their hands on horses to groom and care for them. It helps those humans who are trying to recover feel strength and understanding 
and kindles a kind of kinship between people and horses. 33-year-old man who wants only to be identified by his first initial, T, who's also in recovery, is an alcoholic. He meets other people with similar struggles who come to this bar. You start hearing their stories and, and everything like that, and then you finally start relating and, and stuff like that, and um, it helps. And it's very similar to the horses, actually, because these are rescue horses. I believe Willow is a racehorse, yeah, that was, that was going to be slaughtered. So we all kind of, like, share, like, this trauma, really. You and the horses. Yeah, and, and other addicts and alcoholics. So it kind of helps when we, we all come together and we talk about our issues and everything like that. It just feels like the horses are, you know, kind of like, they're the same, basically. People who come to the Gateway program get to know the horses by name. Disney, Nova, Willow, Remy, and Dallas, and even by their personalities. When you look into their eyes, oh, my God, like, they're... <laughs> They have a lot of emotion. They're all different too. Like yeah. some of them are, you know, more shy. Some of them are more rambunctious or, or whatnot. Yeah, some of them kind of like nuzzle you and, and stuff. But some of them also give you the cold eye or the cold shoulder. Um, <laughs> Was so, it something you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, yeah. Like also, like Nova, the the pony is is very yeah. very tough. But yeah, she's dealing with a, a sickness though. I believe so. I, mm. I think it's really sad actually too. But. So being here is helping you hold on. Yes, definitely. Oh, my God. I think being here is where I've actually talked the most out of the last couple of months, really. Mm -hmm. I don't really like to talk, but I don't know. Once I'm here, it just feels a lot better. Isaiah, how do you feel when you're with the horses? I don't really worry about anything but the present with them, you know? I love petting them. You know, I was hugging them the other, uh, the other week. A friend of mine, um, he died. He passed away. He, um, he overdosed. And it sucked for me because he was one of the friends that I pushed away. Because mm -hmm. I told myself, if I don't push people away, you know, as corny as that sounds, but that stuff is real, you know, I'm going to start, like, going back into my old ways, so I had to push everybody away. Like, man, I didn't get to have, make any amends, you know, say I'm sorry or try to make up. I thought we were going to be, like, you know, in our 50s, 60s or something, l laughing, looking back on life, and that's sadly not how it is. It's not a movie. You never know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I was tearing up, I was hurting inside, and um, as soon as I got to the horses, it, it made my day better. The unique thing about horses is that they haven't read your file. Christian DeMarco is the founder of Gateway Horseworks. They don't care how many times you've relapsed or what your count is in recovery. Yeah. Or, you know, what, That's true. if They're you've been sure. incarcerated, none of that matters. You get a clean slate with them that you don't get with other people. We accompany Isaiah and T into the barn where they feed and brush the horses and clean their stalls. They also hear the stories of the horses they help care for. Christian DeMarco tells us about Nova, who's a pony. She was at an auction for slaughter before she was pulled to come here. Oh my God. As was Willow. Rimtiana was facing euthanasia. Dallas was found you know, malnourished and lame and probably faced a similar fate. And they can have a different ending, just like the people that we work with. Isaiah seems to have a special affinity with the horse named Disney. He puts his forehead lightly along the horse's snout and a hand against its neck. I feel peace. And it's cool, too, because you're like, we're both vulnerable. Like, 
they don't know my intentions with them. I don't know like their intention. Like if he does this, I'm gonna you know act this way. But it's like that mutual connection that uh, you know like we just give each other respect and uh, and love. Uh, Disney really seems to take to you. That and um, Willow sometimes. Remy, she's kind of in her little moods. I think a couple of those days. <laughs> But yeah, I love them all. Um, they just feel you out and just uh, respect and accept you, you know? And I do it with them too, you know, because they've been through a lot of stuff. Willow, when she was um, racing, they brand her and stuff, you know? So you already know she kind of got some trauma, but it looks like she's healed from it because she's calm and, you know, this place is a better place than where she was going to go. And T, who struggles with alcoholism, adds. They're helping us out just by listening, by being here. Think they know that they're I helping? I think so. I believe so, yeah, because they try their best to, you know, help us stay calm for let, letting us brush them, letting us pet them and, and talk to them and everything like that. And that's the reason why me and Isaiah wanted to do a service for them. We mucked that day and we try our best to, you know, brush them and, and give them treats whenever we can. It is hard to say why some approaches to rehab help some people or don't, or for how long and why. Recovery programs can surround someone with love and understanding, but at some point, they have to set sail back under the rough, cold seas of real life. We were told this week that one of the people with whom we spoke this fall at Gateway Horseworks is still in the program. The other has left. But this week, in this season... We think of Isaiah and T and the barn at Gateway Horseworks and of the horses they touched and who reached into their hearts to help them ride through tough times. Next week in Dubai, leaders from all over the world will gather to measure progress and try to set new goals around climate change. Challenges are great, but so are the opportunities as this United Nations Climate Summit begins. You can hear that conversation tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with guest host Sarah McCammon. You can listen with your smart speaker, your phone, or turn on the radio. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Handel's Messiah, Hallelujah, a staple of the holidays, composed by George Friedrich Handel, over 280 years ago and still moves audiences around the world. About 30 years ago, the maestra Marin Alsop put her own spin on this Baroque standard with Too Hot to Handle. We're so pleased to be joined once again by Maestro Marin Alsop, Chief Conductor of the Vienna Radio Symphony and Director of the Graduate Conducting Program at the Peabody Institute of Johns Hopkins University, and a serious jazz musician, too. <laughs> She's at WYPR in Baltimore. Maestro Marin, thanks so much for being back with us. Oh, it's great to talk to you again, Scott. Thanks for having me. What moved you to reimagine a masterpiece like Handel's Messiah 30 years ago? There was literally one event that sort of triggered it, which was that a friend of mine was saying, well, what performances do you have this week? And I said, oh, I'm doing the Messiah. And he said, oh, you know, I really like that part where everybody stands up, but it's a little bit boring until then. <laughs> I thought, 
okay. Oh, mercy. That's not the right what attitude do you want? at all, yeah. you know? And yeah. the idea of updating it, and it's not a foreign idea. Mozart actually updated Handel's Messiah a little bit, and uh, he didn't take it quite to this degree. <laughs> but I had this idea, especially for the Hallelujah Chorus, that it could be a, a really, you know, barn-burning gospel number for sure. Some people might think these are two forms of music that are diametrically opposed, but you don't feel that way, do you? No, not at all. I mean, the thing that we're not really in touch with is that during Handel's lifetime, performers used to embellish, ornament, improvise all the time. So there would never be two performances that were just literally the notes you see on the page. There was a lot of jazz-like improvisation. We want to hear maybe some of the contrast between the two approaches. We're going to play the well-known section, Surely He Hath Borne Our Griefs. And let's ask our listeners to try and determine which one belongs <laughs> where. <laughs> You know, I would say that I love them both, and that's what's that's what's so awesome. When I had this idea, I got together with two fantastic arranger, composer, arranger friends of mine um, that I'd work with in the commercial world, Bob Christensen and Gary Anderson. And of mm -hmm. course, they already knew I was crazy, so that it wasn't you know <laughs> that much of a stretch. But I brought the score, and we went through each of the numbers, and we said, okay. This sounds like a jazz waltz. Maybe this could be a shuffle. And I tried to have the recit sections, you know, the recitativo yeah. sections, be more call and response, that kind of thing, and, yeah. and more improvised. And both Gary and Bob did a fantastic yeah. job. Yeah. Jazz, of course, is known for improvisation, individuality, uh, expression through solos. That can also happen with the classics, can't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it, it's so interesting because I think our conservatory training has gotten away from that. And something that I really try to stress with young musicians is having that ability to take a solo, to write something out, or to improvise on in the moment. That's an incredibly creative outlet for young musicians. So it's nice that we can get back to it a little bit with this performance. Well, and let, let's hear some, can I call it scatting in the Every Valley section? Yes, you scatting. You for sure. <laughs> That's fantastic, isn't it? That's Thomas Young, uh, the tenor there. And, and you can hear from the the orchestration that it's not your traditional Handel <laughs> orchestra. So yeah. we added five saxophones, 
a rhythm section, a Hammond B3 oh organ. Uh, so it's it's really a blast. And you know, Scott, I think having the audience up in the aisles, dancing, clapping, screaming, oh. this is my idea of a great classical concert. Uh, and you encourage your players to add their own flair, don't you? Oh yeah, definitely. I think that for me, the idea of breaking down those barriers so that once again, classical music can be as it was when it was originally played. It can be an active participatory sport. You know, that people really, when they heard the Messiah, you know, they really reacted. Uh, the king, yeah. King George II at the time, he's the one that was so moved that he stood up during the Hallelujah Chorus. That's why people stand up in it today. I, I think I'm I'm carrying on that tradition a little bit. Not only are they standing up, but they're they're really dancing in the aisles now. This is obviously an an important time um, for families and and for humanity when we get into the holidays. I wonder if if there is a message you take both from Handel's Messiah and Too Hot to Mm. Handel that you hope can enliven the lives of people. You know, I think that music is such an incredible equalizer in a way and connector. It brings people together and Everyone's allowed to feel whatever emotion they have, and it's valid. You know, there's no judgment in music. That's what I love about it. Mm. And I think Handel's Messiah, this message of hope for a future that can be filled with miracle and joy and light, you know, that's a message that we all need today, and we have to hang on to that. And I hope you get to hear it soon, Scott. Oh, I hope so, too. Uh, Maestro Marin Alsop celebrating 30 years of Too Hot to Handle. She will be conducting this at the Royal Albert Hall in London on December 7th. Marin, so wonderful to be with you again. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, and happy holidays, everybody. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News, where B.J. Lederman, also pretty hot to handle, writes her theme music. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 28 degrees in Boston coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. Sunshine today, highs reaching the upper 30s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met and Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. 
Comcast. The future starts now. The groundbreaking novel Fear of Flying by Erica Jong was published at the height of the sexual revolution. 50 years later, Molly Jongfast reflects on her mother's legacy. She had some of the worst advice for me I'd ever gotten in my life. I pray to God that these women never got a letter back. That conversation, plus all the latest headlines, Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, how does Qatar come to play a role in the hostage and prisoner exchange between Israel and Hamas? Also, what's behind the unrest in Dublin? A town in Spain wonders if all those tourists are always worth the costs. All those houses where families used to live and send their kids to our school, all those houses are now apartments for tourists. And is one of the artworks on display at a Miami high school by one of the great masters of the Italian Renaissance? Do students say, hey, my trig class, room 308, right between the Rubens and Titian? First, our newscast at Saturday, November 25th, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A temporary ceasefire in Gaza between Israel and Hamas continues to hold. Both sides are expected to proceed with the second stage of releases. It's anticipated Hamas will deliver more hostages taken in its attack on Israel seven weeks ago, and Israel will free several Palestinian prisoners. With the pause in hostilities, more aid is flowing into Gaza. NPR's Greg Myrie has details from Tel Aviv. Palestinians lined up at gas stations in southern Gaza, hoping to get fuel that's been almost impossible to find during the past seven weeks of fighting. The fuel, along with food, water, and medicine, were all part of the largest delivery to Gaza since the war began. More trucks entered the territory from neighboring Egypt on Saturday. Hamas freed 24 hostages, and Israel freed 39 prisoners on the first day of the truce, and more swaps are expected over the next three days. Greg Myrie, NPR News. News, Tel Aviv. There were no Americans in the group of hostages released Friday by Hamas, but President Biden says he does expect Americans to be among those freed in the coming days. The mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, says two people have been injured in a sustained Russian drone attack on the Ukrainian capital. The BBC's Ian Skiffers has details. The mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, said two people had been injured in a sustained Russian drone attack on the Ukrainian capital. Mr. Klitschko wrote on social media that debris from drones shot down by Ukrainian anti-missile defenses had fallen on several neighborhoods. In one area, a number of fires were reported, including at a children's nursery. Authorities said the Russian drones attacked other regions of the country but were shot down. The injury total is up to five, the BBC's Ian Skiffers reporting. 
Abortion has become a central but thorny topic in the GOP presidential nomination race. Candidates are trying to appeal to primary voters who oppose abortion rights without alienating moderates. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reports. Former U.N. Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has been attempting to strike a moderate tone while also opposing abortion rights. In the last debate, she said, quote, As much as I'm pro-life, I don't judge anyone for being pro-choice. That tone has led to attacks from staunch abortion rights opponents, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has signed a six-week ban in his state. Since her comments, Haley has said she would also sign a six-week ban if she were still governor. Former President Donald Trump, meanwhile, has drawn the skepticism of abortion rights opponents by refusing to say he would sign a federal ban. However, he campaigns heavily on abortion, telling crowds he was, quote, the most pro-life president. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. Minnesota Democrat Dean Phillips says he won't run for Congress again. He's pitching for the presidential nomination. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A Lester man is facing charges in connection with the death of a woman at a Worcester massage parlor on Thanksgiving Day. The Worcester Police Department says 31-year-old Marcel Santos Paget was arrested yesterday. Officers went to Angie's Body Works Spa shortly before noon Thursday because a woman was experiencing a medical issue. She was unconscious and later died at the scene. Ski season has officially begun at Wachusett Mountain in Princeton. Three lifts and four trails currently are open. The mountain is celebrating this weekend with live music and beer and hot chocolate. Today is Small Business Saturday, and businesses across Massachusetts are offering deals to try to draw in shoppers. Bill Rennie is the vice president of the Massachusetts Retailers Association and says the day is a good way of reminding people to support the local economy. But we don't want to do that just one day a year. We want to do it 365 days a year. We want you to shop here, there, and everywhere all across the Commonwealth. Rennie says local businesses could really use the boost. Data from the association's latest survey predict retailers in the state will see just a 1% increase in sales compared to last holiday season. That's well below national figures, which predict a 3 to 4% increase. Some holiday celebrations are taking place in Boston today. Roslindale holds its tree lighting with Mayor Michelle Wu. That starts at 3 this afternoon in Adams Park. The event features a rain dog costume contest, live music, ornament decorating, free treats, and a visit from Santa. Starting at 4, it's the third annual lighting of the playship in Martins Park near the Children's Museum. That event includes live music and free treats, as well as visits from both Santa Claus and the Red Sox mascot, Wally the Green Monster. This afternoon, the Bruins are in New York against the New York Rangers. It's 29 degrees in Boston with sunshine today. Highs reaching the upper 30s. Lows tonight in the upper 20s. A mostly sunny Sunday. Highs tomorrow in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Subaru. The Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com slash share. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for joining us. A four-day ceasefire is underway in the Gaza Strip after a deal was struck between Israel and Hamas to allow for a prisoner exchange. 
with a number of Israeli hostages being freed in exchange for Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli prisons. The deal required the work of several nations, including the United States, Egypt, and Qatar, which notably also played a role in the U.S.-Iran prisoner exchange in September. H.A. Hellyer is non-resident scholar in the Middle East program of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C., and joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. How does Qatar come to play such a central role in these exchanges? So Qatar has uh, long-standing relations um, with the Israelis and Hamas in different capacities. Uh, back in the late 90s, I think it was, Israel actually established the Commercial Affairs Office in Doha. It was a bit under the radar. Mm -hmm. um, and Hamas has also had relations with the Qataris and a few years ago opened an office in Doha, which was opened in coordination with and the request of uh, Washington, D.C. to act as a channel for engagements with the group that it otherwise did not want to make too evident and public. Yeah. Some of the organization's leadership uh, currently live in Qatar. Is that correct? The political leadership that is outside of Palestine, yes, um, some of the leaders are hosted in Qatar. And what's Qatar's interest in, in playing this diplomatic role? Well, I think Qatar has sort of carved out a bit of a niche for itself over the past sort of five, ten years in particular. It's a small country. It's an incredibly wealthy country and has been able to parlay some of that economic dividend into um, trying to play a role of mediator, a place where in the Gulf um, people can have discussions. And it's an interesting role it's managed to carve out for itself. Israel's former prime minister, uh, Naftali Bennett, has criticized the praise that, that some of his own country's leadership bestowed uh, on Qatar for their role, uh, saying that Qatar supports Hamas and um, shouldn't be lauded for facilitating a prisoner exchange. Uh, does he raise a fair concern? Naftali Bennett is far right wing um, and is on the extreme of Israeli society on the political spectrum. I think it's worth pointing out that on the Israeli side of this, the facilitation of support going to Gaza, i.e. to Hamas institutions in Gaza, was the expressed, explicit policy of Benjamin Netanyahu's government, and which the Israelis themselves are now attacking him for. Um, so the part of the strategy that Netanyahu had with regards to Hamas was if Hamas is empowered, then that means that Fatah and the Palestinian Authority are weakened. And if they are weakened, then that means that the balance of power between them becomes almost impossible to envisage a reconciliation between the two of them. And if there's no reconciliation, then that means that the idea of a united front for a Palestinian state uh, becomes even less likely. 
You mentioned the extraordinary wealth, uh, certainly for the size of its country of Qatar. Do they have a, a role to play in the future of Gaza and rebuilding? One would have to ask them that, but judging from history, I would presume that they most certainly would uh, would put forward funds in this regard, as I expect other countries in the region will as well. The question about Gaza is really about how to govern it, um, keeping in mind that at the moment, the Arab states have been very clear that they're not suddenly going to try to take over responsibility for the Gaza Strip, which continues to be an Israeli-occupied territory. So responsibility for the Strip and its civilian population belongs to Israel to take care of. And they put it another way very clearly, which is uh, we're not going to go and clear up Israel's mess. There are more hostages. Does Qatar have a role to play as the weeks and months roll on? Judging from what they've said, judging from what the Israelis have said, I would say yes. Of course, the Qatari statements are ones of you know hope and optimism, uh, but they're mediators, right? So they're supposed to be like that. I mean, right now we're doing, quote unquote, a humanitarian pause. The idea of any sort of pause a few weeks ago was ruled out as impossible by the Israelis and the United States. Um, so what the Qataris said, look, a few weeks ago, uh, this would have been unthinkable. So we've got this now. So our hope is to try to extend it and find ways to you know, prolong it. H.A. Hellyer is with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. An anti-immigrant riot tore through central Dublin this week. More than 30 people were arrested. The violence began after an assailant stabbed three children and a woman Thursday. Far-right groups blamed an immigrant for the assault. Connor Gallagher, reporter at the Irish Times newspaper, has been covering the unrest and joins us. Connor, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. At this moment, what do we know about this stabbing that, that seems to have somehow initiated a riot? We know that the most seriously injured victim, a five-year-old girl who was queuing outside of, of this school, uh, remains in an extremely serious condition. Two other children were stabbed. A, a young girl who's uh, six years old received some head injuries. She seems to be recovering well. And another five-year-old boy received more minor injuries. He's been released from hospital. There's also a woman who worked in the school. She'd received quite serious injuries, but uh, they're non-life-threatening, as I understand. And the accused man, uh, or the suspect rather, because he hasn't been arrested yet, he's under armed guard in hospital. He received relatively serious injuries during the, while he was being apprehended by members of the public, he is expected to be arrested in the coming days once he is well enough, basically, to be interviewed. Do we know if the suspect is indeed an immigrant? Yes. Well, the suspect is an Algerian national, we understand. He came here about 20 years ago. He's a naturalized Irish citizen. Gardaí are keeping us quite close to the chest in terms of motivations. Guardi are, are, are it's the Irish police force. Um, they say they still haven't established a motivation. Now, it seems terrorism probably wasn't the motive, but we were still somewhat in the dark. And there are some indications this man had some serious mental health problems, but we just don't know at the minute. How did this attack become a, a, an anti-immigrant riot in Dublin? 
Well, really, really quickly, news uh, spread on uh, social media sites that the attack had occurred. False information also spread just as quickly that one or more of the victims had died. And then information that the attacker was a foreign national also spread. So, I mean, within 45 minutes of the attack, you had people gathering at the crime scene and it quickly turned violent. Then there was calls for, for more people to come into the city centre. She just had people streaming in. And, and what started as kind of a core group, maybe a hundred far right and anti-immigrant protesters, they were soon joined by a more uh, opportunistic cohort who didn't really have any political affiliation, but were just intent on causing trouble, doing some looting, attacking the police, you know, with, with the little chance of being caught. And that's when the worst violence occurred. That's when we saw public transport being set alight. We saw guard cars being broken into and burned, guardy being assaulted, and then, of course, the stores being, being looted. We want to play what uh, the Prime Minister of Ireland said yesterday when he forcefully condemned the rioters. These criminals did not do what they did because they love Ireland. They did not do what they did because they wanted to protect Irish people. They did so because they're filled with hate. They love violence, they love chaos, and they love causing pain to others. Mr. Gallagher, has there been much anti-immigrant violence before this time? It has been ramping up. Unfortunately, Ireland has never had the far right really as a, a strong political force. But in recent years, we've had huge uh, increases in the number of asylum seekers seeking refugee status in Ireland. And then with the war in Ukraine, we have granted refugee status to a huge number of Ukrainians, I think just coming up on 100,000 Ukrainians uh, fleeing the war. And that has created huge pressure on housing. There has been tensions in local communities where they've had to open these kind of immigration residential centres at very short notice, upsetting the community. And that has created some flashpoints. We had a, a violent protest outside a Leinster House, which is where the Houses of Parliament sit, in uh, September on the first day of term. You had a migrant camp being burnt down in the city centre a few months before that. So there is some sort of sense that we had been building up to something, yes. Conor Gallagher of the Irish Times, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. Ahead on Weekend Edition, a study from Johns Hopkins University about dog walking injuries. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Swan Galleries with an auction of modern and post-war art on November 30th, featuring works from the early 1900s through mid-century modernism with sculpture and paintings catalog, bidding, and exhibition information at swanauctiongalleries.com and on the Swan app. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com.
You may get news alerts all day, but that doesn't give you a handle on the full story. Get context and perspective live on the WBUR mobile app. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 30s. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. A temporary ceasefire in Gaza between Israel and Hamas continues to hold. Both sides are expected to proceed today with the second stage of releases, with Hamas to deliver more hostages and Israel to deliver more Palestinian prisoners. With the pause in hostilities, more aid is flowing into Gaza. The United Nations says on the first day of the ceasefire, 200 trucks were delivered with to Gaza. In Ukraine, the mayor of Kyiv, Vitaly Klitschko, says five people have been injured in a sustained Russian drone attack on the Ukrainian capital. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at FJC.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. People in many European cities experienced life with very few tourists during the pandemic, but tourism has come roaring back, and uh, there's some ambivalent thoughts. Here's reporter Miguel Macias in Seville, Spain. If you ever visit Seville, Chances are you will visit this area. Yeah, well, we are in the most touristic area in Sevilla, Barrio Santa Cruz. Juan Antonio Gomez is a chef and restaurant owner. One of my restaurants is uh, located in Calle Mateos Gago. And we are sitting right now in a table with a beautiful view, the tower, Giralda. The Giralda, part of the majestic cathedral of Seville. The view is beautiful indeed, and tourists from all over the world crowd this landmark street. We have pretty much tourism all year. Tourism in Seville has come back in full force after the COVID-19 pandemic. It represents 20% of the city's economy. Many locals live off of this industry that keeps growing and seems to have no limit. That is good news for Juan Antonio. He opened his first location, La Azotea, 15 years ago in an area that was not really that touristy back then. His clients were mostly locals. But soon as, in like three months, we start to receive our first tourist and uh, a year later we have everyday lines at the door uh, the opening time for 30 people mostly tourists but Juan Antonio wishes he could see more locals around here he actually grew up in the neighborhood yeah actually where we are sitting right now that was my way to my school which is uh, like 20 meters from here mi nombre es Ana Palacio soy directora del Colegio Público San Isidoro Ana Palacio is principal of that very school Juan Antonio attended. It's located in the heart of Seville's historic center. She joined the school seven years ago, 
Llegaba el proceso de, de solicitud de matrícula. When we start receiving applications for admission, people would camp out at the door and spend the night to grab a spot for their kids. Now she has open spots in her classrooms. Anna looks up and points at the beautiful old houses in front of the school. All those houses where families used to live and send their kids to our school, all those houses are now apartments for tourists. A recent study by a tourism trade association finds that over 60% of properties in Barrio Santa Cruz are now used to house tourists. For Anna, this is not just a small inconvenience. I have real issues here. When kids enter and exit the school, I have a crowd of tourists at the door. Since the school building is a beautiful old convent, the tourists want to take pictures and shoot videos. The tourism boom is causing an exodus of sorts. Locals have been leaving the historic center for other neighborhoods, driving up rents across the city. And Ana Palacio tells me that tourism is also affecting the way locals enjoy the city center. They don't even feel welcome at tapas bars and restaurants. In Seville, you order the first beer at the bar, then you sit down and chat with your friends, then maybe you order a tapa, and after a while you order another one, and before you realize it, it's five or six in the evening. That would be the civilian way. But many restaurants prefer to cater to tourists. They sit for an hour, order fast and copiously, and they move on. It's gotten to the point where it's not unusual to see places that don't serve tapas anymore and won't let you sit at a table if you're not ready to order a meal. And I get emotional when talking about how the city is changing. We have the oldest historic city center in Europe. Let's not ruin it. If there are no neighbors that care for it personally, neighbors who hurt when they see that tree not being respected, when they see a glass bottle thrown on the ground, we need those neighbors, and we're losing them. One of those neighbors is Ana Álvarez Osorio. She has lived in the city center her entire life. Her daughter actually attends San Isidoro School. She shares the worries about the fate of the neighborhood, but like many locals, she has turned the family property into a tourist apartment. Still, when I ask her about the possibility of limiting the use of apartments for tourists, she has mixed feelings. Anyone who has an apartment wonders, do I rent it for 600 euros a month or do I turn it into an apartment for tourists and make 3,500 euros? Well, we need some limits because our city center is going to turn into one massive hotel. Back in Mateos Gagol Street, the familiar sound of suitcases being pulled around checkout time at hotels and apartments. So I asked Juan Antonio, the restaurant owner, is there such a thing as too much tourism? What I'm seeing right now in Sevilla, I've never seen before, is massive. And I think in one way or another, we have to stop a little bit. The question is, can a force like tourism actually be stopped? For NPR News, I'm Miguel Macias in Seville. In the new documentary, The ABCs of Book Banning, the director, Sheila Nevins, mostly talks to experts. You can look at a shelf and they've left us with Junie B. Jones, which personally yes. is a second grade level book yeah. for me. A lot of the black history books are being yeah. pulled. Yeah. I don't know if we have any LGBTQ books in our thing, but if we did, they would be taking them away. Elementary, middle, 
and high school students in Florida who talk about reading books that have been banned and or restricted by local school boards. Sheila Nevins oversaw documentary programming at HBO for nearly 40 years and has won, this is not a typo, 32 primetime Emmys, but this is the first time she has directed her own production. She's in her 80s. It is nice to give attention to a newcomer. Sheila Nevins joins us now from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I gather you saw a clip uh, from a Martin County, Florida school board meeting that set you off on this project. What was that clip? Well, I saw this woman named Grace Lynn, who was at the time 100 years old, and um, I just chanced upon it, you know, when you're just sort of browsing your iPhone and uh, you're TikToking away and you suddenly see uh, an older woman fighting for something and you don't quite know what it is. It says underneath it, you know, Martin County School Board. And then you realize she's fighting for these kids to have the right to read books that have been banned. My husband, Robert Nickel, was killed in action in World War II defending our democracy, constitution, and freedoms. One of the freedoms that the Nazis crushed was the freedom to read the books they banned. And I thought, holy this woman is out there doing something and I'm doing nothing. And I know I'm only in my 80s, for heaven's sake. And here's this woman fighting for young people to be able to read the books that she read and I read and possibly you read, Scott, that in many ways change our lives and make us know about the world we live in. And um, I thought, I've got, to, I've got to grab her. I've got to get her, and I've got to get some of these kids who've lost the books or who have been deprived of the books to read them and to see how they feel about what they're missing. Some of the books that are mentioned in the course of the film that have been banned Include Slaughterhouse-Five, Mouse, The Kite Runner, The Life of Rosa Parks, The Handmaid's Tale. I can't come up with a better question than why. Interesting, isn't it? Why would you deprive children of this information? If you want them to grow up to be like yourself, and yourself has a limited worldview, uh, or at least the worldview that you believe is the worldview they should have, then you take out anything that you would find as questionable. Planned Parenthood, race, religious problems, difficulties. You know, you would simply want to make your child not aware of all these things that make the world a sort of wondrous, difficult, complex, and often painful world that we all live in. I'm sort of quoting the kids, which is really odd. How can you deprive me I'm 12 or 14 or 15, of information. Why make the choice as a director to interview the students and not parents who are campaigning to, to ban or, or restrict certain books or, for that matter, the usual panel of experts from, I don't know, the American Civil Liberties Union and other places? That well, oppose? I mean, you pick the word usual. I, I, I don't know that I'm unusual, but I don't like to imitate what's done before. And I felt the children were the victims here, even though adult books were somehow pulled off shelves as well. I felt it was in the beginning that you needed the right and the freedom to learn about the world you were going to be growing up in. 
and you really didn't have free choice if you didn't have the economic ability or access to pick any book you wanted, but you relied on your school library to get your book, and it wasn't in it. The shelves were empty. Uh, the books were, you know, held in abeyance until they were approved or banned completely. So I, um, I wanted to go to those who reached for the book and couldn't get it. I want to um, play a clip from the film. You feature a young woman named Avalie, 16 years old, reading from the diary of Anne Frank. I could have been Anne Frank, but I mean, any of us, if we were born in that time and we were born Jewish, could have had the same experience as her, obviously. Books that I read when I was in kindergarten and books that I've read now in any book that I've read across my life, it is, there is vital information in each one of them that is important to who I am today. Is what Avalie gives voice to exactly what concerns some parents, that, that reading these books will, will change them? Yes. I think that what she says is, you know, that she's formed by these books. She becomes who she is as she identifies with strange and new information. And I think the fear is that your child will not be a copycat of you. Your child might step in the wrong direction and then dangerously fall down some serious hole, when in fact it's just the opposite. They might discover a rainbow. Let me ask you about a book that's not in the film, but Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird has been restricted in, in recent years. The Washington Post had a an article recently where it, it noted that it, it, it had been banned or restricted as early as the 1960s uh, for its depiction of sexual assaults. These days, it has been dropped by, I'll use the term, progressive school districts because the book uses the N-word. And there's a, a, a white savior figure, if you please, at the center. Are these restrictions any different than what you're talking about? That's a really a complicated and a difficult question. If you listen to Nikki Giovanni in, in the film, she basically says, and I have come to believe, nothing should be restricted. It's up to the viewer, especially if it's age appropriate, which these books which are given out in our film are. But it's a really important Point. Should anything be restricted? I think not. She convinced me, Nikki Giovanni convinced me, that you give power to the opposition when you restrict a book. Well, you could argue, well, if you give power to the opposition, then restrict the book, and then you'll get a, you know, a turncoat. But I don't think that happens with young people. I think that's a very complicated issue. There are very few books in which the N-word and murder and things like that are, are somehow suppressed or words are suppressed or taken out. But you can count those books on your hand. That's not some 3,000, close to 3,000 books. These are particular books. Do I personally think they should not be banned? Absolutely. Do I think the words should be explained and the situation explained and the period in which they were created explained? Absolutely. Do I understand why they were restricted? Uh, yes. But I don't think you can compare the liberal restriction of some books in the 60s and 70s and 80s and this kind of restriction, which is, you know, um, outrageous and, and, you know, multiplies these books by thousands. 
So yes, I agree. Those books should not be restricted either. They should be explained. Bias and prejudice is something that has to be understood. If you suppress it, as one of the kids says very easily, it will happen again, as if it never happened before. Sheila Nevin's documentary, the uh, the first directed by her, the ABCs of book banning, uh, is available to stream on Paramount+. Plus. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott, for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Now, one of our favorite stories from earlier this year. Those of us who share our lives with dogs have been on a walk at least once when, Squirrel! Off they go, pulling us behind like a tin can. That happened on a winter's day in Washington, D.C. to Gina Epolito when Pimba, her lab shepherd mix, began to run. She went to cross the street at a faster pace than I could handle on the ice. Gina was five months pregnant with twins. I fell, slid on the sidewalk, landed on the ice, broke my wrist, and also then hit my belly. Gina Epolito went to the ER. Her babies were fine, but she spent the rest of her pregnancy with her arm in a cast. In fact, a study from Johns Hopkins University says that walking your dog is a very common way to get injured. We went to a dog park in Alexandria, Virginia to investigate and throw some balls. Of the 24 people watching their dogs race around like jolly maniacs, two knew others who'd have their arms pulled out of socket walking their dogs. One knew of somebody who'd broken a collarbone. Three had taken tumbles themselves. This little scratch here on my knee <laughs> was just from this little guy here. That's Joycelyn Coleman rolling up her pants leg to reveal a three-inch scab. Her little guy is the majestic chow mix, Blaze. Ms. Coleman says she was texting when he saw Squirrel. He pulls me back, of course. I fall down. I got up, dusted myself off. I was fine. Ms. Coleman says she's the one at fault. Blaze was just doing what dogs do. She's glad her tumble didn't land her in the ER. We found that dog walking related injuries sent approximately 420,000 adults to United States emergency departments between 2001 and 2020, with an annual average of over 20,000 visits. Ridge Maxson of Johns Hopkins is the lead author of that study looking at dog walking injuries. It shows that adults over 65 and women were particularly vulnerable to getting seriously hurt. But... Mr. Maxson says the benefits of dog walking for the owners, like exercise and emotional well-being, <laughs> who's a good boy, outweigh the risks. He says just exercise more caution. We recommend avoiding retractable leashes, as well as using shorter leashes, and most importantly, remaining aware of your surroundings and avoiding distractions for yourself, such as texting while walking, as well as your dog. So that can look like avoiding busy schoolyards or other areas where you know your dog is more likely to get distracted. Watch out. Don't want to blow out your ACL. That's another way to get injured. <laughs> is have a dog slam into you while you're standing in the dog park. Back in Alexandria. Squirrel! Mark Kloss says that his two big hunting dogs rolled into the ground a few weeks ago in the rain. Actually, I have a little bit of tenderness still in my hip. Mark Kloss knows that fall could have been a lot worse just as he knows 
Memphis and Maybelline cannot resist a good chase. You know, there may be times where I might have been a little lazy in the past and say, ah. that is an awesome hand bark. But I'll be more diligent and vigilant when I'm walking them to make sure that I am looking for any distraction that might make them want to pull, whether it's a dog or a squirrel or a bird, you know, a Sasquatch, whatever it is that they're going after. I just have to be very proactive and careful. Our other dog owners say leash training helps keep them on their feet. And they're good boys and good girls. Well, they say, <laughs> sort of those treats. Thank you, babes. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Boston City Councilors are getting ready to consider a guaranteed basic income program for families living below the poverty line. On Monday, a council committee is scheduled to hold a hearing on the proposal. Programs already are in place in locations including Chelsea and Cambridge. Supporters of the plan to launch such an effort in Boston say 18.9% of the city's residents are living in poverty. This is Small Business Saturday. The Boston Women's Holiday Market is kicking off its winter season today. It features more than 30 small businesses founded by women and will make several stops throughout the Boston area. This weekend, it's at the Armory in Somerville from 11 to 4. This afternoon, about 100 musicians will gather on the downtown crossing steps in Boston for the 50th annual tuba Christmas celebration. They'll play holiday classics on instruments in the tuba family. The free show starts at noon. It's 29 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs in the upper 30s. Lows dropping to the upper 20s tonight. For your Sunday, partly sunny skies, highs in the mid 40s. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. On this week's Wait, Wait, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google, explains why you would want to work there or not. Free breakfast, lunch, and dinner, massages, you name it. Bring your dog to work. Bring your other pets. We had one employee decide that the policy allowed him to bring his boa constrictor to work. I'm Peter Sagal. Listen to this week's show with the animal of your choice. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Churchill Downs, presenting the 150th Kentucky Derby, dedicated to making memories last forever for nearly 150 years. The Kentucky Derby on Saturday, May 4th. More at KentuckyDerby.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. It's a holiday week and it's time for sports. Thanksgiving football, who got the turkey leg, who got the turkey, yeah, you know, college football rivalry this week and uh, a disgraced Olympic athlete granted parole from prison. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. 
Happy Thanksgiving. Good morning, Scott. How are you? Also to you, my friend. Hope you and and all are well. Um, Green Bay Packers kind of surprisingly defeated the suddenly great Detroit Lions. (laughs) Uh, But Cowboys, 49ers, Dolphins all won. The main course, maybe tomorrow, Philadelphia Eagles. Maybe the best team in the league hosts the Buffalo Bills, who are very good, but not as consistently good as, let's say, Susan Sandberg's Cranberry Horseradish Willis. Um, <laughs> That's right. We're into, almost reached December, Howard. Uh, what do you yeah, make of the season it's now? Separation. It's separation time, Scott. It's actually my favorite time of the year in the in in the NFL when you think about this is where we find out who's built for the long haul. Even though they added an extra game, seventeen game season, but still, once you get past Thanksgiving, you find out who's really good enough to win a championship and which teams are like. It kind of hurts getting hit this hard when it's so cold outside. And so I think, obviously, the the teams to beat Philadelphia, Kansas City, they played for the championship last year in the Super Bowl. They played each other last week. They're the best. You got to love the AFC because you got Miami, really good team. Kansas City, championship team. Baltimore, don't forget them, really good team. Then you've got two teams that are really sort of disappointing disappointing kind of a little weird um ball and buffalo absolutely supposed to be much better jacksonville great surprise nfc same thing san francisco is back dallas is really really good it's there's a lot of teams out there about eight teams or so i think probably believe they could win ohio state versus michigan today what's at stake well everything's at stake what i what i love about this is that Usually when you get to to the end of the, the month, it's all set up. We already know who's going to be in. We know for the college football playoff. But you got about eight teams this year. And let's not forget that Georgia's trying to, to do a three-peat. They're trying to win three straight championships. Uh, I feel bad for Florida State. They lose Jordan Travis, the great quarterback, and so they might be on the outside. But everyone's got to be perfect. Obviously, when you've got Ohio State and Michigan, you've got you know Michigan against the world with all of their scandal and everything else, and you've got a huge rivalry there in the first place. But Ohio State has been a great team all year. The last time they went to the championship, they got destroyed by Alabama. So those Big Ten teams have something to prove when they get on the big stage. But let's let's also not forget you've got a couple of teams that if they get some help, Texas, Oregon, Alabama, they all have a shot. So suddenly, like the NFL, you've got some really interesting stuff happening at the end of the year when normally in college football it's alabama alabama georgia and and the sec dominance not so much this year oscar pistorius has been granted a parole after 10 years in prison uh convicted of culpable homicide in the shooting death of his girlfriend revistein camp what do we know well, we know that he's going to be released on January 5th. I think it's a when you read the stories and you follow this story from the United States, it seems incredibly lenient. And I think some, even some of the South Africans felt the same thing, serving half of a 15-year sentence for uh, essentially murder uh, is is light. And when the United, you know, from from our perspective looking at it, it certainly seems like uh, Oscar Pistorius was given very much the benefit of the doubt in terms of his rehabilitation. Howard Bryan, thanks so much. Thank you. The Renaissance painter Titian holds a special regard. Among many art lovers, he introduced methods of using color in the 16th century that greatly influence art. Hundreds of Titian paintings survive. One recently determined to be at a part of an exhibition in Miami, but as NPR's Greg Allen reports, not at a museum.
but a high school. Miami's Boleyn Jesuit Preparatory School has its own history. Founded in Havana in the 19th century, it moved to Miami in 1961 after the Cuban Revolution. The private boys-only school has a commitment to art education and has its own gallery. But art history teacher Sylvie Dalbar San Juan says the school never before had an exhibition as prestigious as this, one that encompasses three artistic eras, the medieval, the Renaissance, and the Baroque. We're super lucky and particularly, you know, the caliber of a lot of the artists and the fact that it shows these three different styles because you can see in some cases like the same subject but how it was treated in different eras. Miami has become an international art destination thanks to the annual Art Basel Fair and some important private museums that focus on contemporary art. But the exhibition at Belen is something Miami has rarely seen before. Old masters, European paintings, including works by Rubens, Tintoretto, and the one newly attributed to Titian. They're all from the collection of Federico Gandolfi Vanini, a fourth-generation art dealer from Florence, Italy, now living in Miami. My great-grandfather was the first art dealer one of the first art dealers in Italy, was selling only art. Fanini came to Miami with his American wife and four kids during the pandemic and decided to stay. His sons enrolled at the private high school. A conversation with the school's president led to this exhibition. Three paintings of St. Sebastian, clad only in a loincloth and pierced by arrows, are the centerpiece of the exhibition. Until Fanini had it restored, one was attributed only to an unknown artist. But when an old coat of varnish that obscured the image was removed, a high-quality painting emerged, and there were clues that it could have been done by Titian. Standing in front of the six-foot-tall canvas, Vanini points out what art historians call pentimenti, corrections made by the artist that are visible on close inspection. For example, the face of San Sebastian was higher, was looking up. Looking up, yes. And you can see a little bit here, too. It was, the painting was all uh, moved a little bit on this side. Another clue is a fragment of canvas used as a patch on the painting that carries the letters A-N, perhaps part of the artist's signature. The image of St. Sebastian depicted in the painting is well known. It appears in a large altarpiece signed by the artist, now in the Vatican Museum. Fanini suspects that his painting was possibly a study for that larger work. Fanini sent it to London where it could be evaluated by one of the foremost Titian scholars. Paul Joannidis, a professor emeritus at Cambridge University, told NPR that this painting is at least partially the work of Titian. Maria Lowe, a professor of art history and Titian expert, declined to comment on the authenticity of the painting. But she says because Titian had a large workshop that produced many versions of the artist's work, attributing paintings to him can be tricky. It is sometimes difficult to know whether it is an authentic painting painted by the hand of the master or if it's a painting that has been replicated and duplicated and is coming out of the workshop. Vanini says that's why the artist's visible corrections to the painting are so important. It means that it's not a copy of the one of the Vatican, because if it would be identical, it could be just a copy done by his, his workshop, uh, some of his followers, you know, they just, somebody was paying to have a copy of that. Attributing art to old masters like Titian can be a fraught and contentious process, in part because it can inflate overnight the value of a painting from the thousands well into the millions. The high school exhibition will be up through mid-December. Vanini hopes other Titian scholars will take a look and form their own opinions on its authenticity. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Frog and Toad, George and Martha. Curious George and the Man in the Yellow Hat. Children's literature abounds with iconic duos. Then there's Julia and Axel. 
Ladies first. Right. <laughs> I'm Julia Donaldson. My main thing is is um, writing picture books, and probably the most famous ones are the ones which Axel has illustrated. And my name is Axel Scheffler. Yeah, I've done many, many books with Julia, and we have collaborated now for 30 years. Julia Donaldson and Axel Scheffler are the author-illustrator pair behind such classics as Broom on the Broom, Tabby McTat, Zog, and, of course, The Gruffalo. Oh, we could come. We could come, but it would, it would yeah. maybe take a while, yeah. We've One, got, yeah, Axel's six, seven, busy eight, counting now. Like 28 <laughs> books together, I think, maybe. Let's say that. <laughs> okay. One of their latest children's books is The Baddies. It's about a witch, a troll, and a ghost who compete to steal a little girl's blue hanky. I want to see how you do the voices. Uh, yes, Julia, okay, I've never heard right, you read it. <laughs> there once lived a troll and a ghost and a witch. They were horrible baddies, all three. They never said sorry or thank you or please, and their hearts were as hard as could be. And the worst thing about the three baddies, the troll and the witch and the ghost, was the fact that all three of them liked being bad. And what's more, they all liked to boast. The troll said, I'm stronger than you two. I can easily win every fight. The ghost said, I'm much the most scary. I make things go bump in the night. The witch said, My magic turns men into mice and rubies and pearls into coal. So you better beware or you'll end up as frogs or maybe <laughs> as toads in the hole. <laughs> How will this little girl thwart these three baddies? For our series Picture This, Julia Donaldson and Axel Scheffler sat down to speak about the baddies and their decades-long collaboration. What I find interesting is that Spark really happens on paper because contrary to what many people think, we don't sit together and make up a story. If we work completely separately and the Spark happens when the pictures come together with the text in the book. And I think that's that's an interesting phenomenon because I think we're very different people and it's amazing that it works so well. Every time I write a new story, which I hope will be for Axel, I kind of want to have it a bit different from the one that went before. So our previous book had been The Smeds and the Smooths, which is about aliens, and it's kind of Romeo and Juliet story, but with a happy ending. But there's no real villain. So I sort of thought it was time to have a baddie. So I, I kind of beaver away all by myself with my idea, and then when I've got a text that I'm reasonably happy with, I then will send it to my editor. She would then send it to... Axel. My style is just my style, so slightly humorous, I hope. It's very colourful and it's not very naturalistic. And yeah, as I said, it's supposed to be comical. They're really ridiculous, the three baddies, when you think about it. Because the text, I mean, it, they are supposed to be yeah, yes, funny monsters. Yes. For me, it, that is intentional. They, they have to be funny, but... I think children like to be scared a little bit, but not too much. You don't want to traumatize children. And the books always have a happy end. So I'm kind of trying to think what creature, you know, or character have Axel and I not done together? <laughs> it's getting harder and harder, actually. I do think sometimes about gargoyles or a sphinx or something, but yeah, it does get a bit hard. I find it 
easier to illustrate a story like that. I don't think I'm very good at um, observing the, the everyday modern life. The original artwork is done with liquid watercolors. I use a dip pen with a metal nib to do the black outlines first on watercolor paper. So I would trace the sketch on a light box onto watercolor paper. I would do the black outlines first. And then it's a matter of really simple coloring in. So I use liquid watercolors as a first layer. And then on top of that, I use color crayons or color pencils. And then I use a bit of white gouache for highlights and the ghost or something like that. So all done by hand and all very traditional. You always add a lot of uh, details, yes. you know, things that aren't in the text. So there's a lot of funny little extra things like, um, I don't mention a cat in the story, but there's a witch's cat oh, with nice. fangs and, uh, that you've drawn. And there's a lovely bit where the cat's holding out the spell book for the witch to look at. I try to fit in details that are not in the text. I, I feel that's part of my job. I'm looking now at um, one of my favourite pictures where the ghost is trying to scare the little girl, but she's just saying, oh, why don't you have a nice hot bath or read a book or have a cup of tea? And I love the way Axel's done a bath. It's a kind of an old-fashioned lead or tin bath with a wonderful... Um, kind of raised, uh, what would you call it, Axel, with the ogre on the front of the bath? I think it's a lion. Yeah, I suppose it is a lion. And also, that's, there's always, somewhere in our books, there's always a picture of the gruffalo. So just a delightful, every single page um, has got some humorous details in it. What I like about Julia's text is the subtlety of her messaging. It's it's about kindness, it's about solidarity, helping other creatures who are in trouble, and I think for both of us, entertaining children and amusing them is very important. There is a message, I suppose, that however small you are, like the, the girl who has this spotty handkerchief, she in a sense outwits the baddies and that you don't have to be bad to get what you want. I mean, that is an underlying message. of the book. Obviously, every story has to have some sort of message, others would be a bit pointless. But I'm certainly not thinking... Oh dear, I'm so worried that children are being mean to each other. I must try to book to show that kindness can be good. No, not at all. I just hope they enjoy the story and and have a good laugh. I don't know whether I'm right, but I I feel our books are kind of timeless, and that might be some secret of the success. I think my style is very personal, and it's not fashionable or anything. So there's no trend. It's sort of just what I do, and it seems to speak to people yeah you know? and i think the same with my writing um if you fit on something that that works why change it there are things that i find easier after 30 25 years of doing them and i can work a little bit faster but i don't think so, it's changed it's been very successful so nobody <laughs> would change it no need to change it illustrator axel scheffler author julia donaldson talking about their 30-year-long collaboration and one of their latest children's books, The Baddies. Our series Picture This is produced by Samantha Balaban and edited by Melissa Gray. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. 
Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, this year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AMS and the Weather Channel, presenting The Power of Precipitation. Hear scientists discuss whether we're getting more or less snow, what a winter El Nino means, how ocean temperatures affect our weather, and more. December 1st at City Space. Delicious food and drinks included. Tickets at itowardsthesky.com. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR bring you the latest developments on all of these fronts and the context to help make sense of what can at times feel like a senseless world. Keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org and thanks. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.